Hello and welcome to the program. This is another podcast for The Diplomat and with me is Ross Milosevic who is an extremely well-experienced security veteran around Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Africa. He's worked everywhere and he's seen a lot. Now Ross has been quite active in Myanmar over the years and he has a lot to say about what's happening there now. Ross, welcome to the program. No, nice to be here. When the February 1 coup was initiated, you were the first one, I think, that I interviewed about what the military had done. And your observations were quite extraordinary, particularly in the way Tatmadaw, it's a game changer, and what's happening around the region. How do you think things have unfolded since the coup, and where do you think we're going next? Well... Luke, I, I, don't, I wasn't surprised at all from the February 1 to take over from, by the Tatmadaw, but where we're going is very, very delicate, to say the least, as we're seeing from the happenings and goings-on within Rangoon itself, or Yangon, mm-hmm. as it's better known. We're seeing the young people, the young generation that are coming through in their, their teens and, and early 20s and mid-20s are, are putting up a fight, and, and they are realising the freedoms that they've lost. Right. And when I was there back in 2015 during the first election, when Aung San Suu Kyi and her NLP party was um, given the reins, I could see a definite uneasy feeling within the Tatmadaw, obviously because they had changed the constitution, allowing, you know, a third of the, uh, the parliament sitting in within their parliament being military. They still had a large say. Mm-hmm. Now... I believe over the last, you know, five, six years that they have become much more worried about their hold on power. And I wasn't surprised what what took place on the 1st of February. And, you know, I I truly believe that we're on a a very delicate road to a a different Miramar or whatever you like to call it. It has transformed into a civil war. I don't think anybody doubts that now. And... Regardless of the sins of Aung San Suu Kyi, she remains immensely popular and the military seems totally delusional about that popularity and everything they've tried since the initial elections or before that, uh, going back seven or eight years, uh, would indicate that... uh, they have no idea about the general feeling of the population. No, well, that doesn't really matter to them, Luke. It's 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 control, and they're, they're realising that they've lost that control. And they will do what they've done in both, you know, 1988 in, in, the, in the mid-'90s, and they will direct um, force mm-hmm. where required. And they have no, no remorse whatsoever. And they need to keep that control within the boundaries of what they want. And to me, I've always said it, Luke, and I'll say it out loud, that they are a mafia. They control large portions of business interests right across the country within the oil and gas, the telecommunications, uh, industry, uh, mining, logging, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this has gone on for so long now that I think the young people within Myanmar have realised that they are dealing with not a military but a business organisation that has become a mafia itself. How would you rate the military as a military when you compare them with other armies around the region? 
Well, Luke, that's an interesting, interesting question because that's been posed to me a few times, and, and I actually put it alongside of what the Iraqi army was under Saddam. Sure. They have a number of units, a number of battalions that are professional, mm-hmm. but the rest are conscript. Right. And, and they are a the young army. entity, and I really feel that if there was enough pressure put on them by the ethnic organisations and militaries and militias, that they would fold rather quickly like Saddam's did. But mm-hmm. there is, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, scenarios that need to be put in place for that to really happen. Right. I was looking at the numbers this morning and you have the National Unity Government and the People's Defence Force, which seems to be pulling in all these different ethnic militias that have existed for years. And I think this goes to the point of a civil war in that uh, there's been a high tolerance of... Uh, conflict and insurgencies within Myanmar over the decades, but this now looks like they are getting together, they are getting organised. I think the numbers are 79,000 in terms of when you add all the militias together and there's like 325 odd thousand people in Tatmadaw. So the numbers favour the military, but once you start taking out that section which are not really professional soldiers and are in it for the money. And then when you Correct. look at what, where the military has to go in order to assert its control, one starts to wonder about their capabilities in, in a real combat military situation, that is. Yep, absolutely. Look, I, I totally agree with you. And that could be formed, you know, I've said it for many, many years since 2011 that I could see uh, from my research and... and um, moving around within Myanmar uh, through Shan State, Karen State, Mon State, um, Arakan, uh, the Rakhine State, that there is a lot of people that really would like to see a formation of some form of ethnic army that could, you know, put pressure on the Tatmadaw to bring about total change. But that, again, has been a very difficult um, situation to bring about because over the decades, as you've said, the, the Tatmadaw have been very, very good at divide and conquer strategy, and they will pay off and they will give concessions to certain ethnic groups like the Wa, um, sometimes to the Kitchin, sometimes to the Koran, and they start to go on religious terms, especially with the Koran, because one portion of the population is Christian and the other population is Buddhist. Now, they really take advantage of those situations and divide them, and, you know, there's no, no cohesion within the ethnic groups because they're all, you know, got their own agendas and their, their own interests and so forth. But if the day came that, you know, and this is where the young people and gen- young generation seem to be trying to move towards bringing about some formulation of an alliance, more like a, like a NATO alliance, and if, if some sort of agreement could be put in place within the, uh, the ethnic groups, to join forces and go after the Tatmadaw, I think a lot of the Burman that, that are living mm. and within the Tatmadaw would just change sides. Right. And this is where it could get very um, ugly mm-hmm. um, and, and a lot of bloodshed could be um, put in place. But then on the other hand, it could all fold very quickly like it did in Iraq and people just, you know, just left the, the Tatmadaw ranks and then moved over to this new organisation called Naga, or the Disobedience right. um, Organisation, or to the ethnic tribes themselves. So there's a lot of ifs and buts, yeah. but 
this could come about if they had some form of support from the international community, if a, a no-fly zone could be put in place by right. uh, Western uh, countries, mm-hmm. like they did in Kosovo. But, you know... That's where I was going to go seems... next, actually. I mean, I do remember in Iraq when uh, we were approaching Baghdad and expecting a big fight near al Qud with the Revolutionary Guard, and they didn't front. Uh, the term was they melted away. They basically just took off their mm-hmm. uniforms and went home. <laughs> and no, where are they? And uh, I'm not sure if that can happen in Myanmar, but uh, one would suspect it's always possible. In regards to the international community and what you were saying about the no-fly zone, now, sanctions have been introduced. I personally approve of sanctions. A lot of people don't. I think they do work. I think they have to be part of a package. But what else could be done? Would it be possible to um, set up safe havens near the beaches, uh, near a port? Is it possible to find transitory routes to get people out of there? Where does the Thai military sit in all this? It looks like they're doing a deal with Tatmadaw, but not saying what. And ASEAN seems to be, uh, I shouldn't say this, but it's a hell of a joke when it came to that uh, meeting they had a couple of weeks ago and came out and announced the military is going to end its brutality. And it hasn't. And it, yeah. it just goes on. And I, I agree with you. I think we're in for a long-running civil war. And one of the big issues, of course, is that Burma sits on part of China's southern flank and the Chinese really don't want foreign forces in a country which it considers Absolutely. a neighbour. What else can the international community do? I think you're, you're spot on. I mean, I, I'm a great believer in, in uh, sanctions. They do build momentum in, in, in certain ways as long as they're, they're utilised and, and put in force by a large majority of the, uh, the UN uh, contingent. But at the same time, when you've got organisations like ASEAN that um, really don't like to interfere with uh, independent states within ASEAN, it becomes very, you know, it's, it's, it's all talk and no action. And this to me seems to be also within our international and, and Western, Western allies, including the United States, UK, the EU, Australia. Mm, um, five because, Yes, because Miramar is sets right on the Chinese border and has been very influential over the last 20 years. There is a reluctance from the West in interfering or, or doing anything that would cause an international uh, incident, especially a no-fly zone of, of that, that sort. But when you start seeing formal official airstrikes on villages, this to me is, is, is more... It, it, is a, it becomes a civil war, as you said, but it's also, to me, a, um, a sign that the, the country is going into a um, very awful situation uh, where, where innocents are being uh, killed on a daily basis, and that is happening. And right. if there is no action, you know... I'm also, yeah, I'm also thinking of the obstacles. Uh, I was speaking to a senior military source in India a few weeks ago, and he was adamant that um, India, we support the military, India will not intervene. And the reason why is because India has all the servicing contracts for the MiGs and for the weaponry. Correct. The fleets of military aircraft, which are made in Russia and serviced in India, and they make a lot of money out of this. And he made no bones about it that uh, India will support Tatmadaw 
And that kind of throws a spanner in the works when you're looking at a reorganisation or changing dynamics across the region, particularly in regards to China, where you have India, Australia, Japan, the US under the Quads Alliance climbing into Correct. bed together to set up some kind of uh, naval alliance to curtail Chinese expansion in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. So I'm kind of leaning towards is that the Indians are going to be torn over the Myanmar issue and it's going to put other countries in, a, uh, in the back seat in regards to what, what can be done next. Absolutely right, Luke. And that also goes to the ties as well because um, the ties have a, a large trading um, with Myanmar mm-hmm. and I don't think they also don't want to rock the boat. Um, you're spot on about India. They, they also provide large amounts of munitions to the Myanmar military. Uh, in the form of artillery shells, missiles uh, for their jets and helicopter gunship. Mm-hmm. So obviously, th- these are the factors that you know they don't want to lose these contracts uh, because they are big money, and they know that the Myanmar military, the junta, um, control a lot of the uh, businesses within Myanmar, uh, which they get their money from their mining, exporting of, of jade to China, etc., etc., etc. So I see. Both, you know, both India and Thailand are allies of the West and have been for many, many years. So there's the other geopolitical aspect of not going into an area like Myanmar to put some sort of type of force upon them, the Myanmar military, to stop their um, stop their actions against innocent civilians and and the protesters and so forth. Right. So we've got a a very unfortunate situation on our hands. Okay, and the the five generals who head Tatmadaw, they're also wanted by the United Nations, or they're certainly being investigated. I'm not sure where the legal process is at the moment, kind of in limbo after Gambia brought the case for genocide against the Rohingya. But they were found responsible and they are wanted within the international system, which is kind of difficult to describe. As someone once said to me, international law, there is no international law. It's just how do you use laws to negotiate through the international system. But is there anything the UN could do, particularly in regards to the alleged crimes committed against the Rohingya by these generals? I've looked at this on many occasions. I've been in contact with the Gambian government in, in their relation to their international uh, criminal court uh, action against the the Myanmar government and military. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me there's a lack of real determination to put anything in place. I believe that the Interpol should get involved, the international police organisation, and if any of these generals leave the country in any form, there should be pressure on countries to arrest these guys and and send them straight to uh, The Hague or to the International Criminal Court itself. So, but whether these actions can be done, you know, most of these generals are either going to China, Thailand, and I think the Thais could do a lot more, to tell you the truth. Right. But again, it's there's a lot of geopolitical uh, backdoor handshakes that have been performed in this, this region for so many years. As you know, mm. Luke, Southeast Asia is, is full of backdoor handshakes and uh, payoffs that can be done in private, and um, the international community is no, none the wiser. Sure, what's said publicly and what actually happens behind um, closed doors are two different things. Absolutely. I'm also thinking of the, Ming- the Mingminsky Act, you know, uh, the act that was introduced by the United States, which allows them to uh, pursue individuals, particularly in uh, 
questionable regimes. There's been uh, generals who have, uh, who have been pursued in Cambodia. Uh, and elsewhere in terms of targeting sanctions. So their bank accounts get frozen, they're not allowed to travel. Obviously, you can't get a visa to the United States. Do you think there's a greater scope for that in Myanmar? And not just for the five generals, they all have subordinates, they have families. A lot of their kids want to, you know, while dad's screwing around with their home country, their kids want to study in America or Australia in the West. Uh, where else can we go with uh, legislation like the Magnitsky, the Magnitsky Act, pardon me? <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. No, I, I think that's a, it's a great angle to, to look at. And I know for a fact that there is a lot of uh, generals, uh, family, uh, children that are mm -hmm. studying overseas, both in the UK, America and Australia even. And I think that can be utilised in a way that these siblings can be also sent back to their home countries, not allowed to study. Bank accounts, of course, frozen, international bank account, but it's, it's finding the forensics of those accounts right. that need to be, to be looked at. And it's a, it's a job that, you know, would have to go to Interpol or some formal investigative organisation sure. that, that would, bring would in the have the prowess. Yeah, and that would bring in the Bank of International Settlements in Basel, uh, the feds Correct. in New York, it would involve a kind of a network, a web of top-end bankers and authorities to get their act together. Well, I think that can be done, Luke, very much uh, from the FBI. Um, I know the intelligence agencies in the community uh, within the Five Eyes um, Alliance can do that very easily. But it's having the, the formal action proved by, right. by governments, our Western governments, to put these actions into place. And there it, it doesn't seem to be a real urgency or it's, it's sort of like, let's wait and see what happens. And this is where I believe yeah. the young generation of, of Myanmar in Burma and the Burman themselves, not mm -hmm. the ethnics, but the Burman, need to really start to roll uh, with the ethnics and join forces. And that pressure, I feel, would then see outside action coming to help and support. Right. Because I think the Western countries are very now dubious of going into situations like um, Myanmar where tyrannical governments and, and junters like the Tatmadaw are now trying to put in place their own formal, you know, gov mm. governance. And I believe that in the future, within months, hopefully, or towards yeah. the start of the dry season, I think we're going to see some real action take place because now we're going into the wet season, the monsoon season yeah. in Southeast Asia. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of action on the ground. Well, that was the way it used um, to work in Cambodia too, is that uh, the monsoon would set in and everybody would sit in their hammocks and tents getting rained on for a long, long time. And then once the dry season uh, emerged, so did the offensive and you use that the off-season, basically, to re-arm, reload and um, get your Correct. men in order. That's spot on, Luke. And I've seen it too many times within Burma, mm. you know, researching, you know, how the Kachin Independence Army, the KIA, the, the different Shan entities, the militias operate, and the Karen, of course. It's a continued revolution of, of the same strategy every year. Mm. But I really feel there's a real drive within the Burman community, within the young the younger generation that are, that are starting to really push for some formal change, both within the governance and maybe the, the change of constitution, but 
they just need numbers. Right. The more numbers that are, that are put together and they do join forces with the ethnics and then the ethnics start to put implement some form of like a NATO alliance, um, I'd call ETO, uh, the ethnic uh, like an ethnic treaty between all the ethnics to join forces and really take the fight to the Tamandor. And I really feel if that did happen, along with all the organisations that are, are running in Yangon, mm. uh, Mandalay, and there's young people that are, that are joining forces with the different ethnic groups, I think this could be over very quickly if that took place. Right. And one of the big changes that's occurred over the last 10 years is social media. Now, going back to the 90s, 2000 and 2000s, 2000, yeah, a little bit into 2010. Uh, I'd been to Myanmar a few times and it was always shrouded in secrecy. You didn't know what was going on, even when you were there, except that you were being followed and harassed. But it was really difficult to prove what we were hearing in the outside world. These days, I, I have a, a feed coming through from... Um, some of the operators in Burma. I'm certainly not the only one that gets it. It's not. I'm privy to it, but it's going to. It's going to a lot of people now. I'm getting 300 items sent to me a day on the atrocities that have been committed, and it's there for everyone to see. It's evidence for a potential war crimes tribunal going forward. And I think this is also important in terms of winning the sympathies uh people in the west not so much the governments but the people because what we're saying i think is that to get governments to react and we know that governments don't like to be unpopular and they don't like to get involved in conflicts where a it's hard to see an end and more importantly it's uh difficult to win public sympathy and but it's there for everybody to see very much so, very much so. It's, it's funny you should mention this, uh, Lee, because when I was um, working a six-month contract uh, for a large telecommunications provider to Telenor, which is uh, one of the, the bigger uh, telecom providers in Miramar, they were setting up all their antenna stations right across Miramar and um, implementing the, and the services and the generation of phone membership and SIM card membership was incredible right you know we're talking you know very poor people in in the in villages within you know the, the outer ethnic states everyone had a phone everybody was you know getting on board with social media the facebook the instagram etc right. etc cetera, et cetera. and this is where i think the tatmador has lost focus because and this is why they've shut down in rakhine state it was one of the, the longest and um, internet internet shutdowns in history around the world yep. because they realised during the Rohingya genocide that you know, too much news was getting out, too much evidence against them, and it, it was it, it, entirely embarrassing for, embarrassing for them. So this is where they have fallen short and they've had a lot of blowback through social media, and that is generating a much-needed support right, right across the world. But again, are we getting... Or are they getting the support they really need and require to push back the Tatmadaw and, and bring about change and, you know, allowing, you know, a free and fair government that's that's won election, the NLD, right. and Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, to be released, to, to bring about um, a true a government that's been installed? But I don't see that happening, Luke. I really don't. Well, um, when, you, when you're talking they, about support, I presume you're meaning... Weapons, arms, training, medical units, all the types of 
what you need to take into battle, you need to uh, they need to have. Well, that's that's one side, but you've also got to have the political side. I think in any civil uprising, you've got to have both sides of the coin. You've got to have your political side. You've also got to have your military side. And with those two working together in a, in a proper strategy, but implementing the methodologies both on the ground through the military side, but also back in the desks and offices of the of the political side, moving in one direction. But unfortunately, we have too many directions. And there's no coordination, there's no real large base strategy. It's very ad hoc in, in the way they're doing things, and they need some form of leadership. And I think through the Western intelligence agencies, etc., there could be more support and effort put in place to, to, to go in there, as, as a Lawrence of Arabia did, and get the tribes to join forces together and bring about some formulation and strategy to really change the whole aspect of the political system uh, within Myanmar and and see peace right. be reinstated in a, in a proper government. Okay. Now, we had four years of Donald Trump who really dismissed US foreign policy, their agenda across Southeast Asia for, well, during his time in office. And there were a lot of positions left vacant. There were just so many things that didn't happen that Joe Biden, who was inaugurated, what, January 20, and the coup happened 11 days later, would appear he's definitely trying to reassert US foreign policy in the region. But I would imagine that the coup in Myanmar perhaps didn't take everybody by surprise, but it wasn't exactly what the Americans needed when they just starting out on this venture. Do you think there'll be a greater role and will they play a greater role in the months to come? Oh, that's a that's a hard one, uh, Luke, to answer because it's such a young administration at the moment. Yes, Mr Biden has has got a lot of experience with foreign policy and um, his, his years in the US government, but he's a very, um, to, in my eyes, a slow thinker. I think he will just let things play out. His advisors around him will be saying that this could be a, a very similar situation to Syria, having the, so many different organisations, ethnic groups. It could be very messy. So I think there will be a, a much sit-back-and-wait-and-see sort of approach. Um, yes, they'll put in place these sanctions, which they have, which mm -hmm. is very good, but I don't think we will see any direct intervention or or some form of you know backdoor support for any of the ethnic groups or even the the, the young Burman that are that are changing sides and you know fighting against the Tatmadaw. so it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the next few months right uh, you mentioned Syria and uh, it kind of reminded me of some contacts I had there particularly in the free Syrian army and how a lot of people really got their fingers burnt on that one mm-hmm and that could be very similar to what may happen in Myanmar. And this is why, uh, you know, there has been a reluctance from a lot of Western countries to get involved in these types of situations. And we have seen the experience of, of Syria being very prominent. So I think countries like India, Thailand, who are against getting involved also because of trade relations or, or some form, but even Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States and the UK, yeah. um, they're just, they're all very quiet and it's too quiet for my liking because there seems to be maybe some 
backdoor intelligence being provided to these Western countries and to then say, well, we can't do too much because it's on, on the back step of China and we don't want to push things too far and it could change and, and revolve into something more than what we bargained for. Right. Okay, it's a grim future for Myanmar at the moment. Ross Milosevic, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great chat. My pleasure, Luke. It's um, great to uh, to hear from you. Thanks again. Cheers, mate.